we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have all, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The word of the Lord. So with only one week left till Christmas, all kinds of things are now arriving at our door, right? Packages, food, family members, bills. No, those arrive in January. We continue our Advent series, The Arrival, looking at Jesus, seeing God. Christmas is celebrated around the world by billions of people, even many who do not adhere to the Christian faith. But for Christians, Advent and Christmas fills us with hope. Hope. And we're coming to the end of the year. How did you do? How did the year go for you? What word would you use to describe it? Surprise, the lions are still crushing it, right? New beginning, you know, you began a new career, a new venture, a new relationship. Loss, you know, many smaller chapters transpired in your life, but a sense of loss kind of looms larger than them all. Waiting, maybe you're like, uh, nothing really happened in my life, I'm just kind of waiting, and waiting gets kind of stale. And then we think about the world as a whole, right? Whether it's the Russia-Ukraine war or the Israel-Gaza conflict or politics in our own country or news on climate. I mean, all these things can make us anxious and pessimistic about the future, which is why hope rises as we celebrate Advent, by which I mean really slowing down to treasure Jesus and sing to him and give to those we love. Give from his goodness to all we love and share with them. Share from the goodness and the fullness of Christ with those who are weary. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Here's why Advent fills us with hope. Advent is the coming of God to earth to remake the world. Everything will not simply go from bad to worse. Your word for the year, whether it's surprise or new beginning or laws or waiting or whatever else it may be, does not have to define you. It may feel that way right now, but Jesus has come. And with him, the arrival of life, the arrival of light, the arrival of grace. And that's what we're talking about today. The arrival of Jesus is the arrival of grace. Grace. Very few words get as close to the heart of the Christian faith as grace. 
And yet this word does not show up much in our culture. Or if it does, it does not have the rich biblical meaning. Grace is what you say before a meal. Or the way a good dancer moves. Or someone's composure under tough circumstances. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, how impoverished we are for not knowing rich biblical grace. So how is it that with the arrival of Jesus, grace has arrived? We're going to look at three things. First, Jesus alone is the Savior. Jesus alone is the Savior. Look at this verse with me again. In chapter 1, verse 14, John goes on and says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Okay, we're not going to focus on verse 14 because that's our verse for Christmas Eve. And I'm pumped about this verse. Are you excited about Christmas Eve? Oh, so good. Sign up for your service. Okay, so following from that statement in verse 14, John tells us, uh, you know, in 14, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So in verse 15, what does he say about the word becoming flesh? He says, he is the one that I testified about. I said, he is greater than me. You know, he who comes after me is greater than me because he was before me. John, the Baptist, then makes this parenthetical comment. It feels like a parenthetical comment after he said the word became flesh. This is the one that I testified about, and yet it's not. Because you see, in the Gospel of John, as in all the Gospels, John, the Baptist, ministry always preceded the ministry of Jesus. He, he was about six months older than Jesus. He started his ministry much earlier than Jesus. He was well-respected, highly regarded by the people. He was a prophet. John was a prophet and recognized as a prophet from God at a time when the prophetic voice in the likes of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah and so forth had been silent, absent for centuries. Do you understand importance of this so there was buzz around John John was a pretty big deal people were seeking him they were repenting they were coming to him trying to discern the will of God through what he was saying and so as John's popularity grew his message remained constant it was always the same and what John kept saying is I am not the one you're looking for I'm just preparing the way for the one you're looking for I mean, this is pretty much exactly what Paul quotes John as saying in Acts chapter 13. We looked at this verse a couple of months ago in our Acts series. Let me read it for you again. Paul there says this about John. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? Here it is. I am not the one you are looking for. But there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then in chapter 3 of John's gospel, John says this about himself and about Jesus. He says, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. 
And then in our verse for today, verse 15, he says, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Okay, let me ask you a question. Why do you think it's so important for someone so revered as John to be saying, I am not the one you're looking for? I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts virtually have him saying the same thing. I am not the Messiah. I am not the one you're looking for. Why do you think that's so important? Because there have always been people saying, I am the one you're looking for. You know, it can be so annoying trying to watch a video on YouTube because there's always those five seconds before you can skip an ad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I watch that timer like a hawk. I'm like three, two, one, and I click as fast as I can. But I mean, these advertisers have five seconds to convince you that finally they are the ones you're looking for. You know, recently I was watching a video and it was making this promise that with a simple daily trick, you could cure your eyesight. And everybody in my family has bad eyesight. So I kept watching past the five seconds. I felt like I was cheating or something. And I kept watching and I was so tempted to click the link. It's like, hmm. But on principle, I was like, nope, I'm not going there. I mean, who knows? Maybe I would not be wearing contacts right now if I had clicked that link. Who knows? But salespeople, salespeople are trying to convince you that they have what you've been looking for. Influencers do the same. They're the new gold rush. We live in the period of the internet rush. Everyone is rushing the internet, trying to get rich quickly. But they essentially say the same. I am the one. Follow me. Romantic partners also say this. I am the one you're looking for, sweetheart. The search is over. Mentors in our academic institutions and workplace essentially have the same vibe. Right? They say, I'm your future. Do what I say and doors will open for you. Listen, I love salespeople and influencers and mentors and so forth. But people everywhere essentially have this message or this vibe. I am the one you're looking for. And we're all too willing to believe them and follow them. Take me, please. Take me to the promised land. Which is why John's voice is so refreshing. Because John flat out just tells his followers, I am not. I mean, he said it so many times. I am not the one you're looking for. The one coming after me has surpassed me because he's greater than me. You see what he's saying? He says the one coming after me, meaning the one that's going to start his ministry after me, has surpassed me. Why? Because he was before me. John is speaking to Jesus' pre-existence. Remember that in verse 1, we read, you know, the word before time. In the beginning was the word. So that's John's message. It's totally not about himself. Do you know what that message does? At a minimum, it might cause the people hearing it to look elsewhere. I mean, to look elsewhere. If they are constantly saying, I'm not. I'm not the one. Don't look to me. I'm not the one. I mean, just imagine if the greatest names in our culture 
had that message. I am not the one you're looking for. I mean, think about the greatest names in our culture. Beyonce, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, our politicians, our Nobel Prize winners, our athletes. Imagine if all of them, I mean, just imagine this. If all of them pointed to Jesus and said, he must increase, I must decrease. At a minimum, again, it would curb our hero worship. That is our idolatry. You know, as parents, Anna and I have often said to our children, I cannot make you happy. I cannot make you happy. And we just let them wrestle with that statement because children can put enormous pressure on their parents to make them happy. You brought me into this world. You must make me happy. And we're like, no, can do. No, can do. I mean, try it. Try it. Christmas morning is coming. <laughs> just gather everybody and just tell them we want to start this morning by letting you all know that we can't make you happy. Open the presents. <laughs> but this also applies in the church. You know, I often remind people that our church will disappoint them. I often remind them of this, whether they're new or they've been here for a long time. You know what? Our church will disappoint you. I don't want it to. I just know that it will. I know we will. And I say that to people because people can really load up their expectations of the church. They don't mean to, but they do. Here's how they reason. Jesus is perfect and you follow him. So you should be pretty close to perfect. And so I love to tell them, we are not the one you're looking for. Now, if you can see him in the messy, the weak, the lowly, he is here. But you see, we need more voices telling us what John said. I am not the one you're looking for. I am not the Messiah. You know what else that statement does? It takes pressure off. It takes incredible pressure off of all of us. And if you are here and you are considering the Christian claims, you're considering becoming a Christian, you need to know that becoming a Christian is incredibly freeing. It's incredibly freeing. I mean, think about John knowing that he did not have to be a savior, that he could never be, that he could never become. It's so freeing for me. You know, as a husband and as a parent and as a pastor and boss and friend to know that, you know what? I'm not anyone's savior. It's a great thing. It's so freeing. Because you see, as you, as you come to Christ, then you'll be able to accept and internalize. I am not anyone's savior. Because people will try to put that on you. But then you can just let it roll off like water off your back. And you know what? Here's the thing. You can then actually love people better. Not as a savior, but just as a human. <laughs> as a human, as a frail little human. That's what we all are. Here's another thing. If you struggle with a savior complex, Jesus can cure you of that really fast also. He, listen, he alone is the savior. It's a great thing. How is it that with the arrival of Jesus, grace has arrived? Jesus alone is fullness. Jesus alone is 
fullness. Look at verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When we celebrate Advent, we're celebrating the arrival of him who is fullness. Listen to how Colossians chapter 2 puts this. I love this verse. I was meditating on this chapter this morning. I was just so amazed. But listen to this verse. Colossians 2, 9. In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Yes, Megan. I mean, that's amazing. Do you see that? Do not miss this. This is going to this is going to fix so many things in your life. In Christ all the fullness of God lives. All the fullness of deity lived in that body, in that person. And then it doesn't stop there. Then he says in Christ. So if you are in Christ, you you have been brought to what? No, say it louder. Yes, we've been brought to fullness. This is such incredible news. You know, I've always, I've always wrestled with the human condition. I've always just wondered, why? Why is it that children fight incessantly? I mean, they have food, they have toys, they have love, they have not a care in the world, they have health. Why do they fight incessantly and they do it from the time they're tiny they don't even have time to learn it from anybody else why and it doesn't stop with children why do adults fight incessantly gossiping bickering anger feeling slight feeling slighted uninvited, not loved, not seen. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Years and years can go by and people are at each other's throats. And it doesn't just stop with adults. Why do nations fight incessantly? If it's not China, it's Russia. If it's not Russia, it's the Middle East. And our nation is not exempt. Why? Do you wrestle with this? One way to frame the answer is that we operate out of a deep, deep emptiness. Emptiness. It's why we hold on so tightly to our resources, to our name, to our time, whatever it is. We just operate out of emptiness. I mean, when a toddler is approached by another toddler asking for her toy, she doesn't say, of course, I have many of these toys. You shall have one of mine. Now, granted, the language I attributed to this toddler is far too advanced. But even just the instinct to share is not there. It's not there. We're operating out of a deep deficit. This is what scripture means by a sinful nature. It's a nature that has fallen far short of the fullness of God. And it doesn't get any better with adults. We are constantly feeling hurt, offended. We're constantly 
feeling hurt. I wasn't invited. I wasn't recognized. I wasn't promoted. There's a deep deficit that constantly has to be filled. Conversely, Jesus, we read, gave out of his fullness. He gave out of his fullness. That's what we read here. Listen, Jesus left people fuller than he found them. Isn't that amazing? He left people fuller than he found them. Let me give you some examples. In John chapter 4, there's a royal official that has a son that's about to die. And he comes to Jesus. But he doesn't even believe in him. So he has two strikes against him. No faith and a dying son. And he comes to Jesus for help. And Jesus says, you people, unless you people see signs, you will never believe. And the man says to Jesus, sir, come down before my son dies. But Jesus doesn't go. He just tells him, go. Your son will live. And at that very hour, scripture says, the son was healed. And the royal official and his household believed. Do you see? Two strikes against him. No faith. A dying son meets Jesus. And after Jesus, faith and a living son. Jesus leaves us fuller than he finds us. It's that verse in Colossians. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You see, it's not just that we operate out of emptiness. We also have this sense that people who have more than us, however we perceive that more, whether it's financial or resource-wise or time-wise or uh, intellect, expert, it doesn't matter. We feel... Oh man, there are so many class struggles because of this. We feel that those that have more than we do, that we perceive them to be fuller than us, should give to us. It's almost like they owe us. But those who have more look at us and they're like, "Uh, I don't owe you anything. Jesus just gave out of his fullness. I mean, people were constantly coming to him for stuff. And he gave and gave and gave. That's what grace is. Grace is Jesus giving to us when we have nothing to give him in return. When we don't deserve it. Let me give you more examples from John. In John chapter 5, there's a man who's been invalid for 38 years. And Jesus heals him. Here's the thing. The man wasn't even that motivated to get well. Jesus like has to ask him, do, do you want to get well? He leaves them better than he finds them. In chapter 6, he feeds just with these few loaves of bread and two fishes. He, you know, a boy's little lunch. He feeds over 5,000. And scripture says, and they were all satisfied. And in that same episode... Before he's feeding him, he sees the huge crowd. Jesus says to his disciples, how are we going to feed him? And one of the disciples says, "Um, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have a bite. Do you see how the disciples thinking what it's going to take? Emptiness. Jesus is thinking of how to give fullness. 
And so what happens? You know, the, 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 the child comes and his little lunch is there and we know the rest of the story. Everybody's satisfied. But here's the question. How many basketfuls were left with leftovers? How many? Yes, 12. 12. One for each apostle. There's a lesson there for them, right? You think you're empty. I leave you full. And there's a lesson there for us as well, church. And since this is where we are, because we are in the end of the year, and we do have a budget to make, let me say to you, God has given you and me the resources to fund our gospel mission. Do not hold on to them. What if that boy had held on to his fish and his bread and not given it to Jesus? Listen, he leaves us full. One more example. After the feeding of the crowd, people are just amazed. It's like, who, what, what is happening? And so they start going. He leaves and the crowd follows him on foot. They go and catch up to him because they've seen what he can do. They try to make him king by force, which that was not what he was here to do. And so he says to them, stop working for bread that spoils and work for bread that endures to eternal life, which the son of man can give you. So they say to him, well, what sign will you do that we may see it and believe? What, what will you give us? What will you do? Our ancestors gave us manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus says to them, actually, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he says, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down to the world and gives life to the world. And then they say to him, sir, give us this bread always. And then he says to them, I am the bread of life. Now notice that Jesus did these works of power, these signs to show them his power and glory. And we're going to talk more about his glory next week on Christmas Eve. But when he sees that the people are going after him because they want more bread, more signs, more of the same thing, Jesus switches the plane of meaning and says to them, stop working for bread that spoils and work for the bread that endures to eternal life. And then he says to them, the true bread is the bread that comes down from God and gives life to the world. And when they say, sir, give us this bread always, he says, I am the bread of life. Do you see? They're looking for the same bread they just ate at his hand. And he says, stop looking just for that. Here's a good place for us to segue from verse 16 to 17. Because in verse 16, we read that out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. What does that mean? That we've received grace in place of grace already given. Verse 17 explains it. Verse 17 says, for, that's an explanation, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, the law was given through Moses and the law was a gift. Oh yes, it was a gift of grace. 
I mean, Israel had what no other nation had. They had the patriarchs. They had the very words of God. They had the promises of God. They had the covenant with God. All of this was a gift of grace. But then with the coming of Jesus, the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth had arrived in bodily form. And so, yes, Moses gave the manna in the desert. It was from God. It was from heaven. But it was only for a season. It was only for Israel. One and done. What if? What if there was a way to feed the hunger of the whole world? And the deeper hunger of the soul was satisfied. And the source of life was never exhausted. What if there was a way to do this? Wouldn't that be better? That's what John means by the fullness of grace. The fullness of grace has now come. You see, everything Moses gave them, Jesus surpassed. Everything Moses gave them, Jesus surpassed. Manna in the desert. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He is the bread of life for all the world, for all time. It's now one and done. For all time, Jesus is better. The temple in Jerusalem, the most holy place on earth. Jesus is the true temple. And all who are in him all around the world, they do not have to go to Jerusalem or anywhere else, wherever they may be. Anyone who is in him, who has him, has the holiness of God in them. The Sabbath, one day in seven for rest. Jesus is our true Sabbath. Every day with Christ is a day of rest. Rest from sinning, rest from striving, rest from warring, rest from empty ways of life. The Feast of Tabernacles, symbolizing the 40 years in the wilderness and God's provision of water. Can you imagine providing water for an entire nation in the desert for that long? God did it. And yet Jesus comes. And on the greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he announces, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Do you see? That's what fullness of grace means. Everything Moses gave them, Jesus surpassed. Church, we are so empty. We live so empty. It's why we fight so constantly and we get hurt and offended so easily. And we are constantly scrolling, just trying to have something fill our emptiness. And we're so addicted and we're so stingy. We're so empty. Do you believe that Jesus is your fullness? Do you believe it? Or are you still operating out of a desperate and utter emptiness? If so, maybe, maybe you do not know him. He alone is fullness. And then finally, how is the arrival of Jesus the arrival of grace? Jesus alone makes God known. Jesus alone makes God known. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. 
But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So with that statement, John brings his prologue to the gospel, to this beautiful gospel, to an end. It was well known within Judaism that no one, no human could see God and live. No sinful human could see a holy God and live. Not even Moses. When God says that he's going to show his glory to Moses, he really only lets him see his back. That's all he gets to see. The afterglow of his glory, as one commentator puts it. Isaiah, same thing. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees this vision of God. What he really sees is what? The train of God's robe filling the temple. Just the train of the robe. And then the vision was gone. And so John here is affirming this truth. No one has ever seen God. But then he gives us the reason, the greatest reason, that the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of grace. He says, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And there, John is bringing us back to the very first verse of this chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because here he tells us that he who himself is God. Remember in verse 1, and the Word was God. And he says then in verse 18, who is in closest relationship with the Father, and the Word was with God. Remember, he's the same and he's not the same. The word and God are the same and are not the same. He's saying it again here in verse 18. And what he's saying is that the only way to know God is for the one who is God himself to make him known. And so as the time was coming for Jesus' departure from earth back to his father, he says to his followers, he says to the apostles who have been with him from the beginning, he says, if you really knew me, you will know my father also. And then he says to them, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. You have seen him, he says. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. By the way, Philip is also the one that earlier had said, it would take over half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have just one bite. I mean, not to throw Philip under the bus or anything, but he's not tracking very well. We all are Philip. I mean, that's, that's right where we are, where we would be. And so Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough to us. And Jesus says to him, show us the Father. He says like, Philip, don't you know me? After I've been with you so long, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You can see that this was painful to the Lord. But church, Jesus came to make the Father known, to make God known. But he doesn't make God known the way that a math teacher shows us math. Or the way that a piano teacher shows us how to play the piano. No, it's more like, it's closer to, imagine if mathematics itself, if mathematics itself became a person and went to MIT and Harvard and all of our schools and started showing us, teaching us math. That gets closer to how God, Jesus, makes the Father known. 
because he is one with the Father. He has the same essence as the Father. He is from the same realm as the Father. He shares the same glory as the Father. Jesus is in closest relationship with the Father and came to make him known. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We can finally see God. It's why we said the arrival, looking at Jesus, seeing God. And it's painful to me when people look at Jesus and don't see God. I hope, I pray that you, if you're here and you have never come to Christ, seen God in Christ, that perhaps even today, this would happen for you. But let me say one more thing. It would do us no good for Jesus to come and show us the Father and for us to find out that the Father is angry with us because we hate each other and we hate him. That would not help us at all. You see, from the perspective of John's gospel and really from the entire New Testament, humanity has a huge problem, a problem of cosmic proportions we reject the light we love the darkness our deeds are evil and therefore the wrath of God is settled against us we are justly condemned so we don't just need a savior who will come and show us the father we need one who will make peace between us and the father and that's precisely what Jesus has done See, John the Baptist didn't just say, I am not the Messiah. I am not the one you're looking for. Uh -uh. When Jesus started his ministry and John saw Jesus, he says to his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to go to the cross to take away the sin of the world, a world that rejects him. Can we praise him for taking away our sin? Are you grateful that he takes away your sin, my sin? He's taken it away. That's why it's great news. It's the arrival of grace upon grace upon grace. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Listen, out of our emptiness, Jesus received insult upon insult. Beating upon beating, rejection upon rejection. He came to make God known and we killed him. But in his death and by his death, he paid. He paid for the sins of the world. He paid for your sin, for my sin. And from the cross, he says to us, I have emptied myself of life to give you my fullness of grace. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he arrived till he appeared and the soul knew its worth from the cross Jesus says to us I emptied myself of life to give you my fullness of grace Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We give you thanks 
for giving us grace. Oh, what a word. Oh, what a rich word. Grace, grace upon grace. That's what you came to do for us. We thank you, dear God. We praise you, dear God. Jesus, we thank you that you came as our only Savior. Thank you for voices like John the Baptist, who was crystal clear that he was not the Savior. He was not what people needed. Lord, I pray that you would help us know this. Help us know this about ourselves. Help us not try to be anyone's Savior, not our spouse, not our children, not uh, the people that work with us, not our friends, no one. That's a horrible place to live. Put ourselves in a place that we can never fulfill and help us clearly say that to them. Lord, I also pray that you would help us know that Jesus alone is the Savior and that he alone is fullness, the fullness of God in helpless babe. Thank you. Thank you, God, for coming with all your fullness, for sending your son who makes us full. And I pray for everyone here because all of us, I do, we all operate from so much emptiness and it's what makes us intolerable and miserable and difficult to be with and not a blessing to others is this deficit that we all feel in our hearts so intensely and we try to make up for it in all kinds of destructive ways deceitful ways dark ways and so i pray lord that you would help us turn away from those things and turn to the turn to the light turn to the source of life turn to grace the grace of Jesus, who alone is the fullness of God, bringing us to fullness. And Father, I pray that we would know that, that we would know that you make us full. I pray that everybody will leave here knowing that they are fuller in Christ. Oh yes, God. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus making you known. It's incredible that we have seen you, Father when we have seen the Lord Jesus. We have seen exactly how you feel about us, how you teach us, how you heal us, how you leave us better than you find us, how you forgive all our sin. I pray for those who are here holding on to sin of some kind, that they would turn from it and give it to you, Father. And trust you, trust you to forgive them, trust you to change their desires, trust you to fill them to the fullest. Oh, how wonderful. We love you. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. We rejoice, dear God, this Advent with the coming of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.